Good morning, beautiful people. Good morning. Good morning. Our scripture this morning is Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Again, it's Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, and it reads, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp, two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Good job. Taylor, thank you so much for doing the reading. Man, you're right. What a fun song. What a great song. Good words. Thanks, Pastor Josh. Let's pray and, and see what the Lord has to say to us in his word this morning. Lord, you tell us that those who have ears should hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Lord, we want to hear what you have to say to us today. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would fill me and speak through me. Your Holy Spirit would speak through the written word, that your Holy Spirit would speak to every heart that's here, the message that each of us needs to hear in the way that we need to hear it so that we might walk more closely with you. Lord, we have sung some amazing words about complete devotion to you, about giving our whole hearts to you, about giving everything we have to you. And Lord, that's a beautiful thing to sing, but it's a challenging thing to live. We pray, Lord, that because we've been here today, because we've looked into your word, because we've chosen to be filled with your spirit, that those words that we've sung will be true in our actions. Lord, we pray for those who are listening online and are away from us. We ask that you would bless them today, whether they are our missionaries or our military or our students or those who are ill. We pray, Lord, you'd bless them today. And you bless our church, scattered and gathered. And we ask all these things in the powerful, redeeming name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When someone looks at you and maybe they scowl and says, I know where you live, they're not saying, hey, let's get together at your house for coffee. It's a threat of some kind. Maybe there's retaliation involved when they say those words. Well, Clint knew where I lived. Chris was an elder in my church, and his classmate in school was a man by the name of Clint. And before Chris was saved, he and Clint did things you shouldn't do, including drugs. And Chris got beautifully saved. 
He came to our church, and Chris became an elder in our church, loved the Lord, and he spent time with his schoolmate Clint, who was still involved in drugs, and led Clint to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Chris and I baptized Clint at Monolua Bay in Hawaii. Clint started coming to our church, started being part of a small group, started growing in Christ. But then Clint relapsed, got back into drugs, lost the house that he was renting, lost all his furniture, lost his car, lost everything, and he began living in the park right across from my house in Kulio'o, at Kulio'o Park. So I'd see Clint almost every day. One time when I was away on a trip, a missions trip, I believe, gone for a couple of weeks, Clint started coming to my house when I wasn't there. And I had some roommates, and they were intimidated by Clint, and Clint was demanding food from them, so they gave him food every time he came. Well, they told me about it and said, you have to do something. You have to stop him. So one day, Clint came by when I was home. I met him at the door. I walked out to the porch there, closed the door behind me, was talking to Clint. And I said, Clint, we want to help you. We want to see you do well again. We want to see you walk with the Lord. But we can't just keep giving you food. We feel like we're enabling you. So I'm not going to give you food today. But if you want to get other kind of help, we will offer that to you. And so I walked in the house, shut the screen door behind me, walked into my kitchen. Unbeknownst to me, Clint had followed me in. And he was right behind me. And I was now in the kitchen, in the corner of my kitchen with the counters, and Clint cornered me in my kitchen, face to face. And I could see that his eyes were glazed. It looked like he was high on something, and he was getting agitated. And then he looked over, and there was a carving knife on the counter. And he grabbed it, and he held it to my stomach, and I'm cornered. And at that point... I began to reconsider my position about giving him food. (laughs) Clint knew where I lived, and I felt threatened. As we come to the third letter of seven letters written to seven very real churches that existed in the first century, we discover that Jesus says to this church, I know where you live. We'll show you a map just to remind you of these seven churches located in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, across from Greece. We're going to be talking about the city of Pergamum, which is up toward the north there. And Jesus writing to them in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he tells them, I know where you live. It says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, that's Jesus, says this, I know where you dwell. I know where you live. And he adds, it's where Satan's throne is. That's where you live. I get it. I understand. You hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who is killed among you, where Satan dwells. When Jesus comes and says, I know where you live, it's not a threat in this case. It's a word of encouragement. 
you have an outline in your bulletin, or if you're listening online, the outline is under the PDF icon there. And the first principle that we have looking at the outline is this. Jesus knows where you live. Jesus knows where you live. In other words, he understands exactly what you are experiencing. He understands exactly what you are experiencing. He says, I know where you live. You live where Satan dwells. I get it. I understand. All of us want to be understood. That's why sometimes in frustration you say to a loved one, you just don't understand. And you're probably right. (laughs) They probably don't understand. But Jesus understands. He gets it. He knows exactly what you're dealing with. He knows exactly what you're going through, what you're experiencing, what you're feeling, what the hardships are. He gets it. He knows where you live. He knows where you dwell. One commentator says of this word dwell or live, it means to have one's permanent residence in a place. In other words, you're stuck there. You're not getting out. Your circumstances are not going to change. This is your life. And Jesus says, I get it. I know what you are experiencing. You live where Satan dwells. He inhabits it. He's not going anywhere, and you're not going anywhere. Jesus says, I know. Now, those Greeks have two lovely words for know, as you might guess. And for the four people here that are interested in this, I want to point out what the word is. The word here is a Greek word that is often pronounced oida. And oida actually is the perfect tense of the word to see. So in other words, the perfect tense means I have seen. So the word used here literally means I have seen, but after a while, people started using it to mean I know. Because when you have truly seen what's going on, then you know what's going on. And Jesus says, I know because I have seen what's going on in your life. I have seen what's going on around you. I get it. I know. You're not alone. You're not abandoned. You're not neglected, avoided, or ignored. Jesus knows where you live. He understands exactly what you are experiencing. Once again, I point to you, out to you that these letters, each of the seven letters, it says, is written to, first, the angelos, the angel, as we translate it, of the church. The Greek word angelos means messenger, and when we see a translated angel, we think of a messenger with two wings, and that's unfortunate because... What he's talking about here is a messenger with two legs. The messenger here is the pastor of the church, and we know that because you read the context. It can't be an angel. It's a man. And notice what he says. When he says, I know where you live, you don't see it in the English, but in the Greek or in the King James or some other language, you will know that it's in the singular. I know where you, singular, pastor, the messenger, I know where you live, pastor. You live in the city of Pergamum. And the city of Pergamum is where Satan dwells. It was a city that was a religious center of pagan worship. It was also a political center. The next slide shows you an artist's rendition of the city of Pergamum based on the excavations that they did. It's a reconstruction that he's drawn here. 
And in the city of Pergamum were many pagan temples. There is a temple to the goddess Athena, who was the goddess of war and wisdom. Allegedly, Athena was born when her father, Zeus, the king of the gods, had a massive headache. And she was born out of his head, fully grown and fully clothed with armor. How about that? And then there he had a temple to Dionysius. And Dionysius was the god of wine and religious ecstasy. The Romans called him Bacchus. And then they had another temple. There was a temple to Asclepios. And Asclepios was the god of medicine and healing. And he was depicted as holding a staff with a snake that went around it. And that was the symbol of healing, the god of Asclepios. And then they worshipped the king of the gods, the god of the gods, Zeus, who was the god of the sky and the thunder and the lightning. And Zeus was the one who would throw down thunderbolts of lightning at you. No one ever said, oh, I love Zeus, <laughs> or Zeus loves me. They had frightening gods. And in the city of Pergamum, they built a marble altar to Zeus. The next slide is a picture of the actual altar. It was excavated by a German team in the late 1800s. It was brought to East Berlin. It was put in a museum specifically built for the altar, and it was restored by Italian artisans. That is the altar that was in Pergamum when this letter was received nearly 2,000 years ago. That altar is 120 feet wide. It is 110 feet deep. The marble steps are about six feet wide. I looked up in between services, and it's approximately the same size as the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. It's huge. And this could be one reason why Jesus said, you live in the city where Satan dwells because of this altar to Zeus, the king of the gods. But Pergamum was also the seat of the Roman government for the entire province of Asia Minor, of what we call Turkey. It was the seat of the government. And during this time, they implemented the worship of the Roman emperor. And you could still, at this time, worship whoever else you wanted, the pagan gods like Zeus, the Jewish god, the Christian god, but you also had to worship the emperor of Rome. And every year you would have to offer him some incense to show your allegiance to the Roman Empire. In fact, the first temple in Asia Minor dedicated to the worshiping of the Roman emperor Augustus was built here in Pergamum. And this also might be why Jesus said to the pastor, I know where you dwell. You dwell where Satan's throne is. Not only the altar of Zeus, but where there is the emperor worship going on for the entire Roman Empire. And Jesus commends the pastor and his church for holding fast during previous times of religious persecution. It says in verse 13, 
you did not deny my faith. The construction there is you singular. The pastor, you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. We don't know anything about this martyr Antipas, but we know he was a member of the church in Pergamum, and he was killed for his faith in Jesus Christ. We also know that the name Antipas is a Greek name, and it means against everything and everyone. So if you want to use a Greek name for one of your children, don't pick this one. And Jesus says, I see, I know, I understand, you have kept the faith. You have loved me even during persecution. And as a pastor reads this letter to his church, they're all nodding and they're feeling good about themselves. And then he reads the next word in verse 14. But, oh no, but I have a few things against you. When someone says, Pastor, there are a few things I want to talk to you about. A few? Like, not just one, a few. And Jesus goes, I have a few things against you, not just one. And when he says against you, it's in the singular. He's confronting the pastor of the church. Because where the pastor goes, the church goes. And he says to the pastor, I have a few things against you, singular. Because you, singular, have there some. Some people in your church who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. And if you remember your Old Testament in the book of Numbers 22 to 25, I think it is, we have the children of Israel, the men, the Jewish men, are enticed with sex from the pagan women from Midian and Moab, to worship false gods. You see, sexual sin and spiritual sin are tied together. Because when you worship a false god, God sees that as spiritual adultery. That's what it's called in Scripture. It's spiritual adultery. And it's tied in with sexual sin of fornication and adultery as all as well. And God hates that. He hates that. And the Jews in the Old Testament had gotten involved in, with idols and sexual sin. And now Jesus is telling the pastor the same thing is happening in your church. You have people in your church that are teaching people to be involved with idols and sexual sin. And it was happening in the church in the first century and it continues to happen to, to the church throughout history to the 21st century. That what's going on in the culture is starting to permeate the church. Just like in the children's sermon with that white paper towel that's dipped into the dark coffee, it comes out and it's been permeated by the culture. Let me give you some examples. Back in the 1970s, before most of you were even born, I was a teenager. And I remember one of the favorite shows I used to watch on TV, there's a caveat, just because I watched it doesn't mean you should watch it. As I remember, it was wholesome, it was good, and it was fine to watch, but, you know, I was a teenager, maybe I'm wrong. Okay, caveat ended. 
So the show I loved was Happy Days. Oh, yeah, you know, and, and it's this nice nuclear family with a dad who owns a hardware store. They live in Milwaukee. Mom is a stay-at-home mom. You know, there's a, a brother and a sister that, you know, treat each other like brothers and sisters do. You know, they have little squabbles, but then they get along and they love each other. And then there's the rebel. The Fawns. Arthur Fonzarella. And you know he's a bad guy because he rides a motorcycle. (laughs) And he wears a white t-shirt and a black leather motorcycle jacket and his hair is slicked back and he goes, hey, or whatever, you know. There's no violence in the show. No sexual things going on in the show. No swearing in the show. None of those things you go, ah, 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 fast forward. You couldn't fast forward back then, you know. You just had none of that. But I remember one episode where the big issue, the big controversy, was that the Fonz was dating a woman who had been divorced. And at that time, that was sort of scandalous in the culture and scandalous in the church. And the big discussion at that time in the church, especially, was the issue of divorce and remarriage and who could divorce and what grounds you could divorce and could you date them and could you marry them. And it was in happy days and it was in the church. I got older. Time went by. The next issues that I saw going on in the culture also went on in the church was couples living together before they were married. When I was growing up, that was scandalous in the culture and scandalous in the church. Eventually, it was totally accepted in the culture. Some of you can't even relate to the fact that that could be possibly scandalous because you live in a culture where it's normal. And that also became normal in the church And statistics that you read show that there's no difference between Christian couples and non-Christian couples when it comes to living together before marriage. The culture has influenced the church. And most recently in our culture, our culture has embraced same-sex marriage. It's now legal. And the church is rapidly following suit depending on what church you're part of. And with both the culture and the church giving the same argument on why same-sex marriage is okay. And the most common argument that I have heard is that they're in love. And because two people are in love, they ought to be able to marry. Now let's reflect back on what we've already learned from these letters to the churches. We saw the letter to the church in Ephesus. It was a church that had sound teaching, sound doctrine. But they were corrected by the Lord Jesus Christ because they had lost their love for Jesus. They were not a loving church. They were just strict and had rules and taught things accurately, but no love. And Jesus says, get back to the love. Now we come to the church in Pergamum. Jesus commends them for not denying their faith in Jesus. 
They had stayed firm in loving Jesus Christ. But their teaching was off. Their doctrine was off. They were starting to teach in their church it's okay to be involved in idols and sexual sin. We have one church that was loving but taught wrong. We have another church that taught well but wasn't loving. And both churches are out of balance because you have to have both truth and love. Both. They are like, as I've said earlier, two wings of a plane where truth is one wing and love is the other and the plane is not going to fly without both. Which brings us to a second principle that is all throughout Scripture and that's this, number two on your outline. Love never trumps truth. Love never trumps truth and truth never trumps love. And truth never trumps love. Look at another analogy. It's because truth is the foundation of the building and love is the building. Think about any relationship you have. You're in love. If you find out that what you thought isn't true about the person you're in love with, that building collapses immediately. When the foundation of truth is gone, the building built with love collapses. The scripture is replete. It is full with scriptures that show truth and love are two sides of the same coin. They are paired. They have to be together. Let me just show you some. I'm going to turn them quickly. If you can't turn that quickly in your phone or in your Bible, just listen. I have all the passages with a paper clip, so I can go rather quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6. It's the love chapter. It says this in verse 6. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but love rejoices with the truth. This is a chapter about what true love is. And true love rejoices with the truth. They can't be separated. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Ephesians 4, 15. But speaking the truth in love. You can't just preach truth. You have to do it lovingly. Truth in love. They go together. And he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him, into Jesus. You can't grow in Jesus without both truth and love. 1 Peter 1.22. 1 Peter 1.22. Since you have in obedience to the truth, you've obeyed the truth, you've purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. You cannot have a sincere love for others without obedience to the truth. That word sincere is an interesting Latin word. It means without wax. And where they got that is they, they would have a vase, and if it had a crack in it, and you wanted to sell it to somebody, you filled the crack with wax, you know, and kind of covered painted over it. And so you would hold the vase to the sun to see if there were any cracks, any wax. And if it was without wax, it was sincere. And so he says, if you want a love without cracks, 
If you want a sincere love for other people, you have to be obedient to the truth. They can't be separated. 1 Corinthians 3.18. I'm sorry, 1 John 3.18. 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue. I love you. But indeed in truth. It's not enough to say it. It has to be coupled with actions and with truth. They go together. 2 John 1.3. That's the last one we'll look at here. It says this. 2 John 1.3. Grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. When God dispenses grace... When he dispenses mercy, when he dispenses peace, it's done in truth and in love. They go together. Love never trumps truth. Truth never trumps love. One of the most common arguments for same-sex marriage is they are in love. So if that principle is true, if it's a truth that you can bank on, you need, it, it should be able to apply or it has to apply to every other situation if it's a truth. If it's a truth, it's going to apply everywhere. So let's find out. Let's give us another scenario. Suppose that when I turn 65 years old, I decide after a life of singlehood, I'm going to get married. And you go, about time, you know. <laughs> and so I... I tell you, I'm marrying this beautiful, godly Christian woman. She's never been married before either. And I send you an invitation. Would you come to my wedding based on what you know? Sure, I hope so. And then you find out this beautiful Christian woman who's never been married before is 15 years old. I'm 65 and she is 15. That's not illegal in the state of Hawaii, as long as I have her parents' permission. It's not immoral. It's not unbiblical. You'll never find a verse that says, I can't do that. So now that you know that she's 15, and I'm 65, and I go, but we're in love. I love her so much, and she loves me. Would you come to my wedding? No, because it is gross. <laughs> Man, I hope you weren't asleep and you woke up halfway through that. And <laughs> <laughs> you see, because we're in love is not a truth. If it was a truth, it would have to apply in that situation. Because truth and love cannot be separated. Truth is the foundation for the building of love. Brings us to a third principle. Let Jesus, not culture, determine your sexual practices and beliefs. Let Jesus, not culture, determine your sexual practices and beliefs. Because Jesus shows up in Revelation 2... And keep in mind, he is not judging the pagan world. He's not judging the city of Pergamum. He came to judge his church. You see, we Christians should expect unbelievers to act like unbelievers, 
To expect unbelievers to act like Christians is legalism. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have a relationship with God. We are being unfair to them. Well, of course pagans are pagans. Jesus is coming at this time to judge his church and says to his church, you shouldn't look like unbelievers. You shouldn't look like pagans. I know where you live. I know there's pagans all around you that worship false gods, that commit sexual sin. And you're going, yeah, but did they have what? Yes, they did. Yeah, but did they? Yes, they had that. But no, we have. They had that too. All the sexual sins that, well, don't think about them, but all the things that are going on in our culture, they had. And Jesus says, I don't want that taught in your church. I know it's out there. I know Satan dwells there. I know it's not changing in a good way around you, but I don't want you to change to be like them. And so Jesus shows up, and remember that every church he shows up to, he gives them a short portion of the longer vision that was in chapter 1 of Jesus. And notice the very short vision this church gets of Jesus. It says in verse 12, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword. That's a picture of judgment. The sword is the last word. The church in Pergamum understood exactly what this meant. Jesus used the word for sword, romphia, it's not the same word as sword as the sword of the Spirit or the sword of the Word of God that we have other places in Scripture. That's a short sword. This is the romphia. This is the long two-edged sword that the Romans perfected in battle. Other people, when they took this sword, when they came at you, they swung it like this. And you could miss, you could maim without killing. Remember Peter, the fisherman, who wasn't much of a swordsman? He had one of these swords, and when he went after Malchus, the slave, the high priest, he swung it, and like he's trying to cut his head off, and he gets an ear. You know? So the Romans, instead of swinging, they were taught to take the sword and thrust it right into the chest of their opponent. It was decisive. It was the last word. And that's one reason the Romans were so successful in battle. While other people are slicing and dicing, they're, whoop, last word. The Roman government had two types of proconsuls. We, we, we think of them as governors. We'll call them governors. And one governor was given the right of the sword. Another governor wasn't. And if you were a governor that had the right of the sword, it means you had the power of life and death. It means that you could execute someone right on the spot because you had the power, the right of the sword. And Jesus shows up and he has the right of the sword. And he shows up to the pastor of the church and he's ready to fight, not the pastor, not the good people in the church. He's ready to fight the people in the church that are destroying his church. Because a church is his bride. And he loves his bride. And Jesus shows up as a hero to defend his bride. To keep her spotless and pure. 
And so it says in verse 16, repent. And that construction in the Greek is in the singular. It's talking to the pastor. That's how we know it's not an angel. Angels can't repent. They don't repent. Jesus didn't die for their sins. Their sins can't be forgiven. They don't understand. They don't experience grace and forgiveness. He's talking to the pastor and he says, you need to repent or else I'm coming to you singular quickly and I'll make war against them. Not with you, pastor. With them with the sword of my mouth. I'm coming to fight the people that are teaching falsehood in your church because your church has been compromised by the world. Jesus, not culture, needs to determine all of our practices, our sexual practices, our beliefs. We're His bride. He loves us. He wants the best for us. And then He closes with a beautiful postscript in verse 17. He says, He who has an ear to hear, He says, Pastor, I'm speaking to everybody now, Pastor. Everybody. Everybody's got a ear. Let him hear what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit says to the churches, plural. Not just the first century church, our church, Kailua Community Church. To him who overcomes, we saw from 1 John 5, 5, that refers to the believer, the one who's put their faith in Jesus, has overcome. We win. We're on the winning side. To him who's put his faith in me, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. You might recall that manna fell from heaven during the time where the children of Israel would fled from Egypt and they were in the Sinai Desert. Have you ever been to the Sinai Desert? There's nothing there. It's a desert. <laughs> And they wandered for 40 years because they disobeyed God and that generation had to die out. So it took 40 years for one generation to die out because they didn't believe God to take the promised land. And so God's going to give it to their children, but they had to eat. So we rained down bread from heaven, which is a picture of Jesus. He's the bread of heaven. Every day they collected the bread from heaven day by day, just enough for that day unless it was a Sabbath and they got two, two on one day. And when they... Children of Israel saw the manna. They said, what is it? And that's what manna means. It's Hebrew for, what is it? (laughs) And Jesus says, I'm going to give you some of the hidden, what is it? Well, what is it? (laughs) What's he talking about? We don't know for sure, but there's a possibility. The possibility is this. We know for sure that God told Moses to put some of this manna in a jar, a container, and to put it in the Ark of the Covenant that would go in the Holy Holies. And in this Ark of the Covenant, there were three things, if you remember. There was the manna in the jar. There was a copy of the Ten Commandments. Moses got, the reason there were two tablets, it's not like the pictures, you know, with Charleston Hesson, there's five on one and five on the other. It's because when you made a covenant, you made two copies for each person. And so God had a copy and the people had a copy. There were 10 on each tablet. And so a copy goes into the Ark of the Covenant. That's God's copy. And then there's Moses' rod that budded to show that he was the leader and God had his rod bud, if you remember that story. And that's in the holy place and that was in the movable tabernacle. Eventually it ended up in the temple that Solomon built. But Solomon's temple was was destroyed in 600 B.C. when the Babylonians came in. And here's where the legend comes in, tradition. We don't know if it's true. 
But the legend is that the prophet Jeremiah was able to grab that jar of manna and he hid it. And the people believed it would be hidden until the Messiah returned and brought it out. And that was a picture of the Messiah returning and setting up his kingdom. And could it be that Jesus is saying, I'm coming back to set up my kingdom. Yes, I will give you some of the hidden manna. You'll be part of my kingdom. You've overcome. I'm coming back for my bride. And when you come, I'm going to give you a white stone. Again, we're not sure exactly what he meant, but here's a very strong possibility. In that culture, when they had a jury... Each member of the jury was given one white stone and one black stone. And they voted with the stones. And if you were guilty, you got a black stone if they thought you were guilty. If they thought you were not guilty, they gave you a white stone. And Jesus says, when I come back, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to declare you not guilty. But Lord, we kind of messed up here and we kind of did this over there. And he goes, I know. I paid for those sins on the cross. And yes, I'm the judge, but I'm also the Savior. I'm the sacrifice. And that stone's going to have your name on it. It's going to be personal. I forgive you. And you go, what's the name? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's a pet name he has for you, a special name. It's pretty intimate. He says, only Jesus and you know the name that he puts on the stone when he says, I forgive you. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful ending. He goes, I know where you live. I know it's hard. I know you're going through this. I know you're influenced by your culture, but I want you to know you're my bride. I'm coming back for you, and I'm going to rescue you, and I'm going to live with you forever, and I declare you not you pray with me? I'll ask you to bow your heads. Have a moment with the Lord. Have you overcome by putting your faith in Jesus Christ? The Bible's quite clear. There are only two destinations in all eternity, and one is with Christ and one is without Christ. One is what we call heaven, and the other is what we call hell. And Jesus says, I offer you heaven. I offer you a perfect place. I offer you the sentence of not guilty of forgiveness. And all I ask is that you put your faith in me, that I died for your sin and rose from the grave. Have you done that? Have you yielded your will to his? Have you asked Jesus to save you? If you haven't, cry out to him now and say, Lord Jesus, save me, I believe. And he will. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you that even though we know we sin, that you choose to forgive us and declare us not guilty. We love you, Lord Jesus. Help us to live in a way that we influence the culture around us and the world around us for the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Closing with 1 Thessalonians 5.23.
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit, your soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his mighty name I pray, amen. Have a great day. God bless.